welcome to a new episode of The Brand Called You. Today I have a very, very dear friend who's flown all the way from Shanghai for our interview. Alan Hepburn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Alan is uh, from the Westminster Hotel School. He's an accomplished hotelier. He's worked with the Mandarin Hotel and Ritz Carlton. He founded and promoted Three on the Bund in Shanghai. Um, he is he's the CEO of Kids Edutainment, managing partner of Advisory Board Architects. And most importantly, he and I both are members of the YPO. Uh, Alan is currently the regional chair for YPO Gold Southeast Asia. Alan, uh, before we get into detailed discussions about a lot of things that you've done, um, tell us a little bit about your early career, your learnings and your challenges. So I had not really put a lot of thought into my, uh, my career choice. Um, I ended up going to university studying chemical engineering just because I got the right qualifications. Hadn't really thought what that meant. Mm -hmm. And really all I learned was how to uh, make a very good gin and how to put a bet on horses. Wow. So after a couple of years, I realized that this was not going to be my, uh, my career. Um, and frankly, I didn't want to tell my parents. Uh, they were quite pleased that their son had gone to university. Uh, had the opportunity, they did not. Um, so I, uh, I, I left without letting them know uh, and, and actually went to London uh, with uh, you know, one suitcase and 50 pounds in my back pocket and no, nowhere to go, just had to figure it out from day one. So um, that would, <laughs> hopefully my children don't do this, but uh, that was the, the path I chose then. So I started to work in the hotel industry. Uh, I had been working as a student, I'd been working in restaurants and bars, etc., for extra cash. And I, f I felt I enjoyed, I enjoyed the people business. I enjoyed meeting people and uh, interacting with people. And so, yeah, got a job, uh, London Hilton, uh, 1980, as a junior waiter in room service, which meant you polished cutlery for three months before you saw a customer. So, yeah, really started from the, the, the ground floor. And yet you ran some of the most iconic hotels. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I was, I, I was pretty fortunate after about seven years working in London, doing various things in the... And I've always believed if you work in the best places, you'll be around the best people and you're going to learn the best ideas. So I always worked in the best hotels. Um, I had a phone call one day from my very first phone call but from a, a headhunter uh, offering me an opportunity to go to Hong Kong to what was the, the world's best hotel at the time, the Mandarin Oriental Hong Kong, to run their signature restaurant, the Mandarin Grill, which is uh, still there today, a very famous place. So for a 24-year-old guy who had never been on a plane, um, I just said yes. <laughs> Literally, uh, an, another one-way journey. Um, arrived in Hong Kong. Again, I've never been anywhere except the UK. Uh, and it, it just blew me away. Um, I love being a fish out of water. I love the unfamiliarity, okay. the smells, the food, just everything about it. So I, I kind of fell in love with, uh, with, with Asia. Um, and so I worked with that company uh, for about 13 years going around Asia. They had a, a number of properties around Asia. So I worked in the Philippines, worked in Indonesia, Macau. And so I, I left that group as a general manager um, and then spent some time with the Ritz-Carlton as a hotel person before, uh, before leaving the hotel business to do something else. And then when did you move to Shanghai? Was it uh, when you were taking on this three on the bund or before? No, I'm, I moved to Shanghai as a corporate guy with, uh, with Ritz-Carlton. And it was one of those... Classic stories in, in, in cities in Asia where I, I literally was going there for six months. The deal was 
spend six months in, in Shanghai with the, the regional vice president, and then I was going to go back to Hong Kong and take over their flagship property mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. But as you just mentioned, uh, another opportunity came up, um, which was not the hotel industry, which was to create the first luxury lifestyle company in China okay. called Three Underbound. And to me, it just seemed the greatest opportunity ever. Uh, so I left the hotel business and started that business in uh, 2001. Okay. And talk to us a little bit about Three Underbound. What exactly is it? So essentially, it was a building mm -hmm. um, on the Bund, which mm -hmm. is the, the, the famous part of Shanghai in the center. And if you look at pictures of the, you know, Shanghai in the 20s, that whole Bund area where ships just lined up yeah. and, and all the beautiful colonial buildings, British architecture, Russian architecture, uh, French, were all head offices. Yeah. And this is also where the famous HSBC building is. Isn't it? Yeah, number 12, exactly, uh, which is still there today. Um, so you have all the, the Hongs, as they were called, all the big trading houses had their offices there. Jardine, Swires, all these companies. But since uh, you know, since many, many years, there was nothing going on in the bunch. So yeah. it was just this architectural piece with nothing going on. So we actually bought the uh, the only building that was ever sold. Uh, we bought that building and we developed inside uh, the best of contemporary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So food, fashion, art, music, culture, and wellness, all in one integrated uh, concept. And we operated everything. So there was really nothing like it. We weren't copying anybody. And I don't think anybody had ever done this anywhere in the world, let alone China. Uh, and a lot of people initially thought, no, oh, you must be crazy. Luxury in China is not going to work. People don't want that. Of course, it's the exact opposite now, as, as everybody knows. But it was kind of fun being a, a pioneer and doing something really off the charts. Um, and yeah, it was a success from day one. And it's still there today, uh, but it, it really was a success from day and, one. And did you roll this out into other cities of China? We did also, not in, in its complete form. We took components. We did yeah. restaurants in various places. We did retail. We did various things. But that was really the mothership, uh, the brand. And uh, it was a place that the whole world was actually talking about for, for quite a while. So if you go back to uh, Shanghai today, mm -hmm. that whole Bund area, which has extended way beyond what you would actually call the Bund, it's now one of the most exciting lifestyle places in, in, in all of Asia. Uh, and that was really the government's vision. Like many things in China, they have a plan. And the reason they allowed us to start with this incredible opportunity was to be the catalyst for everything else. So one more question about uh, your move to Shanghai. You know, you've been there for 20 years. Mm -hmm. What's it like to live as an expatriate in China? It, it's wonderful, I'll be honest with you. Uh, we can't always take our reference points from the media, quite honestly. Uh, China's been good to me and my family. I've uh, raised a family. Both of my kids are, uh, are made in China. Um, and we've lived there, uh, as I say, for, for a long period of time now. Uh, you know, give you an example. I lived in an old house in the former French concession, uh, which, which we bought. You know, pretty much the first year we were there, at least once or twice a month, Neighbors would come by, they would knock the door, they would bring, oh, we've cooked uh, too much food, have some. You know, my kids were out playing with their, their kids, hanging out in their houses. Uh, and we were the only foreigners there because all our neighbors were actually government employees. Um, they couldn't have been more welcoming. We, we were really totally embraced by the local community. We felt part of it. Uh, we felt very privileged to be on the inside uh, with, with, with a, a very tight Chinese community and be totally welcomed. So, and I, I didn't lock my door uh, in 16 years. In, in the middle of maybe one of the biggest cities in the world. Never locked our doors. So I didn't worry about safety, security. Um, and certainly uh, my, my kids had a, had a very <laughs> a very nice childhood. So 
Only when we travel internationally now, especially when they were younger, we'd have to you know, warn them that everybody's not necessarily your friend. So they, they grew up in a very different world, actually. Amazing. That's quite an amazing perspective. Thank you. So now moving on to your new uh, association with Advisory Board Architects. Talk to us a little bit about what uh, this organization does. So Advisory Board Architects, it's a global company. Um, the founder is from the US, uh, very smart guy. Uh, he works on Wall Street as a, as a quant trader. So he's all about pattern recognition, mathematics, algorithms. And he had done very well at a very young age, sold out, and he bought a few companies that he didn't know much about, started putting some processes into running them, uh, building advisory boards for those companies, and being a very systematic gentleman, was putting a lot of process in. And some of his friends started to see what he was doing, asked if he could help with their businesses. Mm -hmm. And then I think he realized, actually, there's a, there's a business here. So he took a couple of years out, and again, being the, the mathematician he is, he built uh, a bunch of proprietary tests that we own, which essentially identify what a high-performance advisor looks like. So I, I'm the managing partner for Asia, um, and we work across all sectors, from public to private, family business. Mm -hmm. uh, we even work with governments, uh, post-M&E deals. Essentially, we start with a business plan. Um, we then find the smartest people in the world who mm -hmm. have done what you want to do. They have the skills, they have the experience, and they have the knowledge. And then we put a lot of rigor around the process to make sure that they're coming in and helping you drive strategic impact, helping you drive your bottom line. Okay. So it's a pretty focused uh, approach. It's what we would call the non-traditional way to run a board. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember as the CEO of companies, you know, I dreaded the board meetings. I spend three, four days getting ready, you know, 200 page PowerPoint presentations, which you'd send out that nobody read. You'd go to the boardroom, you'd spend three hours taking them through this and dreading if they'd come up with any suggestions or questions because they, they knew it was going to just distract you from running your business. Yeah. And so this is the exact opposite. We believe a board should actually be there to educate management, mm -hmm. to help management, to intervene and, and actually help the business, not there to run like a police. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a kind of different way of looking at it, but it's really fun. So it gets me on the inside of so many different mm -hmm. companies. Yeah. Uh, and the hardest part actually is not giving my opinion because I'm there to run a process, not to add an opinion. And of course, sometimes you think you could add some value, but that's actually not my role. Sure. Uh, but I find it fascinating. So tell me, you know, for the thousands and thousands of young people who listen to our podcast <clears> and videocast and who I'm sure would gain a lot from everything you're saying, what is the difference between a fiduciary board and an advisory board? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So most companies do have a fiduciary board and they carry a legal responsibility. So the decisions that are made, um, there is some liability for, for that. So they're, they're, and frankly, governance in most countries uh, is an extremely important part of running a business. And the directors, the fiduciary directors, have the responsibility to ensure management are complying with rules, regulations, and essentially behaving properly. They may or may not add value to your business beyond that, and that's perhaps where we would come in. Advisory board has no fiduciary responsibility. So essentially, um, it's a group of individuals who the CEO believes knows more about a few topics than he does, he or she does, and, and potentially could add some value to the business. Right, right. Interesting. In fact, uh, in India, for example, a lot of people are now hesitating to get onto fiduciary boards because the government has just passed a law which says that the liability of a non-executive board member is the same as that of an executive board member. Right. And that is quite frightening. Right. And what that 
ultimately leads to in our experience is very low impact boards. There's a lot of people just nodding and agreeing and not saying too much. Uh, and so you may have to do that to comply with law. But our, in our view, uh, that's a pretty low impact uh, process and, and really won't do an awful lot to drive your business. So Alan, when I was reading about you, you said that uh, Advisory Board Architects develops and operates strategic value, high impact fiduciary and non-fiduciary boards. Mm. What does this mean to a company promoter? Well, essentially, uh, it means if, if, you, if you're interested in growing your business, um, that's where a high performance advisory board can really help. Um, they can really accelerate because if you, bring, if you think about it, if you're looking to enter a new market or you have a new product line or, or you're moving out of your comfort zone, what better way to succeed is to avoid the pitfalls that all beginners would make in that sector. So bringing in people with the experience who have been there and done it, their job is to look down the road and make sure that you don't fall in any of the pitfalls that uh, you know, honest, hardworking entrepreneur business people can make. So they're really there to look at the future, not the day-to-day -day detail. And very often, uh, whether it's a CEO in a, in, a, in a corporation or an entrepreneur or even in a family business, people are very involved in day-to-day -day and they take very, very little time to look down the road and try to see how they can best position their company to take advantage of the future. So that's really what an advisory board does. It, it provides strategic advice. So, you know, uh, a lot of young promoters uh, I have seen and interacted with, they tend to fill their boards with people who they know, their mm. friends or family. And what I'm hearing mm. you say is that's not the most optimum thing to do. We have a client uh, in, in an Asian country. They're number one in their industry. And uh, on our very first meeting, uh, he said, uh, I pay my board to say nothing. <laughs> so, and there's a lot of people, to your point, they put their best friends, their cousins, yeah. their extended family. And that's fine. Again, you're ticking the box, but they're really not going to be adding an awful lot of value to your business. So mm -hmm. it takes a CEO with perhaps a little more vision and a little more courage to admit that they might not know everything about everything. And why not take some, some serious advice and also some offers to help from people who have a bit more experience in that sector. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, a, a lot of people that struggle, intellectually, they agree it's a good idea, but emotionally, they find it challenging to have a group of people come into their boardroom and start giving them uh, advice, which might be contrary yeah. to what they had already agreed themselves. So to take, take another set of words from uh, your profile, what is the meaning of develop and operate an advisory board? Exactly that. Uh, you know, if, if, if we're engaged uh, with a client, we would do a search globally or regionally, depending on your needs. We identify the people, we test them uh, very rigorously, okay. uh, and we actually create a, a mathematical prediction of how much value each individual candidate for your board could add. So it, it's very mathematical. Um, so we develop that whole process. We train the company on how to interact and get value. We train the directors how to deliver value and engage. And we then actually facilitate that process. So if I'm doing my job properly, I'm doing very little in a board meeting other than listening to how long directors speak and how important it is. We're metricing everything they say. Mm -hmm. So at the end of a meeting, we have a very clear performance rating on the directors, on the board, and we benchmark that against our top 15% global directors and boards to see how we're doing and we try to improve for the next time. So it's highly quantifiable. So you have observers who sit in the board meeting. If I was running the board, it would be me. So yeah, I would be operating that. So I say, if I'm doing my job, I'm saying very little. But if people are uh, directors are repeating, if they're saying what they said before, if they're just blindly agreeing, 
they're just wasting airtime. So my job is to ensure we're saying something new and impactful okay. every time. So interesting. So at, at what stage uh, of uh, an organization's progress mm. should an entrepreneur start thinking of building an advisory board? Great question. Uh, I think as soon as they can afford it okay. would be my answer. Um, because, you know, good advice uh, is, is like gold. Yeah. Uh, and I think anybody who has the open-mindedness uh, to take advice, some uh, younger business people, whether they're entrepreneurs or they will take mentors. And, and that's another great way to get good advice from somebody who, again, perhaps has got more experience. An advisory board is, is perhaps more challenging because you, you're, you're literally going to get uh, different perspectives from different people. And the ideal on a board is, is that everybody has a very different skill set. They might not be from your industry, but they have very specific skill sets which you need at that specific moment in time. And when you're moving your business past that, then I, we really believe that directors should be recycled because everybody has a real expertise at a certain thing at a certain point in time. And when we move past that, it's perhaps time to, uh, to bring in somebody else who's more relevant to your current needs at that moment. So you mentioned that you, know, you, you, sil you select and search for mm. suitable candidates. Yes. Um, my, my question is... Uh, the reverse. How does a suitable candidate reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously the, the, the word of mouth. A lot of our directors refer people to us, actually. Uh, as I say we're working uh, globally. I think we're in about 25 countries around yeah. the world. Yeah. So it, I guess more of a people do come to us. The one thing which, um, which I do have to tell most of them is, unlike a headhunter who their day-to-day -day business is to have a large bucket of people that they go to, when we are searching, we're doing such a precise search. Mm -hmm. It's less about the big bucket of names we have because we're really lasering in on very specific skills and experience and networks that people have at a specific moment in time for a certain business. So we will do a global search uh, going through all different mm -hmm. types of uh, areas where people, you know, whether it's uh, university alumni or whether it be corporations or business associations, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's beyond just our database. In mm -hmm. actual fact, usually most of our searches, we take in a global perspective. So one last question on uh, advisory board architects before we move on. Um, a lot of search firms also offer this service mm. of Great. advisory boards, but that's one little section or segment of their entire activity. How are you different or what is the additionality you provide? There's only one company in the world who has been gathering data on high performance advisors, okay. and that's us. Uh, we've been gathering that data for 15 years, as I mentioned before listening to everything those directors have been saying, thousands of board meetings, we've been metric in what they say. Yeah. And given that our founder is a, is a mathematician, all of that data gets put back into our model. So when we test you, potentially as an advisor, we're testing for an advisor, not for a CEO or a head of marketing. We're testing. And so, for example, there's a specific skill set that we look for. It's called algorithmic hierarchy processing, and essentially a fancy name for how do you relate to data? How does your brain draw conclusions? from a limited data set, mm -hmm. how do you process that information and how do you make a recommendation? That's a specific measurable skill. Okay. And the higher you're in that skill, the better an advisor you're going to be. So we know how to test for that and nobody else does. Okay. So Aaron, you know, you've been involved in a lot of new businesses, startups, etc., and you live in the most exciting part of the world, which is Hong Kong and China. What do you see are the positives that the authorities have done to promote such a powerful startup ecosystem in China? So China, I mean, in the last 
20 years has taken more people out of poverty than ever before anywhere in the world. So, you know, China is very much open for business. And, and obviously right now there's a geopolitical tension, as, as we all know in the news. But I don't see that deflecting China from its mission. Uh, we, we've moved past being the sort of the labor for the world. So cheap labor is no longer a thing, as it is no longer a thing in Japan and Taiwan and various other countries. We've moved past that. We've moved into the services side now. And so the, the government, as like a lot of governments around the world, has realized that uh, creating jobs through entrepreneurs is, is definitely one way to replace jobs which are lost in mass manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So if you're in, if, for example, the city I live in, Shanghai, the government almost acts like a VC fund. I mean, young people there actually as a first port of call after university. If they have a business idea, they go to the government and they pitch their idea to them. If it looks reasonable, the government will come in and actually help to get them started, sometimes giving them an office environment, sometimes a small amount of money, sometimes advice. They, they actually have programs for this. And so you need to be a Chinese citizen to take advantage of that. But they're really actively promoting that whole sort of startup entrepreneur culture. So I think what you're seeing now, and I think what you're certainly going to encounter over the next 10 and 20 years, will be this whole new uh, wave of, of, of young Chinese entrepreneurs in different sectors there was a time not too long ago, uh, even when I first arrived there, a lot of the creative ideas you saw in China came from the West and they were taken in, adapted, used and modified. But I think what you're seeing now is actually a lot of creative ideas, a lot of very creative business people coming out of China itself. And the government's definitely playing a part in that. So, you know, I, I've traveled uh, extensively on the eastern coast of China, which is where all the development is happening. Uh, is there something similar happening in the rest of China? So it's a good question. I, I, I think most people would say that there are two Chinas, urban and rural. Yeah. And there has been a migration over the last couple of decades, which has been encouraged and supported by government to migrate from the, uh, from the rural to the urban. So I, I think the population now is around 55% urban, but 45% rural. So there, there's definitely a difference in, in the level of, of education, which is where everything starts in any country. There's definitely a difference in terms of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that the government has, has been addressing that is actually to create infrastructure around the hubs, that the cities, the first tier cities, second tier cities, third tier cities, that allow people, when they do move from the rural areas to the cities, that there is accommodation, that there is infrastructure for them, and that there are jobs. Mm -hmm. So, there, you know, it's, it's a challenge because we're talking... As with India, we're talking about very big numbers of people. Absolutely. We're talking about huge numbers. But it's definitely something that there is a plan in place. And, and I, I think that the, uh, the opportunities which most young people are getting now in China are vastly superior to what they were 20 years ago. Sure. I agree. So I'm moving to a few questions on you for you personally. Um, what are the three adjectives that would describe your strengths? Okay. Um, I would say, uh, in fact, somebody just used that word a couple of days ago. Uh, I'm a connector. I, I connect people uh, mm -hmm. across all kinds of spectrums, whether it be for professional or, or other reasons. Um, I'm also a creative thinker, uh, and I do like to have a little bit of quiet time every day. Uh, I, I keep various books and files. Uh, if an idea pops into my head, I like to write it down because I don't have a great memory, so I write it down. And I may or may not do something with it, but I, I do like a little bit of time just to, uh, to do some thinking. And that thinking can take across mm -hmm. a broad spectrum of, uh, of activities. 
And probably, I, at least I'd like to think I, I'm a good listener. Okay. I think uh, there was a lot of smart people out there and it, it does us well to actually listen sometimes. So, you know, uh, Alan, 17-year-old, left home, uh, started with polishing silver in a hotel to running the biggest hotels uh, in, in, in the Far East, to building uh, a completely new brand, to uh, doing incredible things with his advisory boards and now in the leadership of YPO for all of Southeast Asia. What has been the secret of all the success? Well, I'd rather be lucky than good. Um, so there's definitely, there's always a component of luck mm -hmm. uh, in, in anything. And, and I do feel, I do feel lucky. <clears throat> um, I've, you know, if, I, if I'm ever asked by, you know, younger people and I do some mentoring and one of the things I'll always encourage young, uh, young people starting out is, is try to work in the best place. Uh, you know, whether it's the best company or, the, you know, if you're, if you're around people who are top professionals, you see how they, you don't have to copy everything they do, but at least see how the smart people are doing it really to a high standard. Then you take that knowledge and you do what you want with it later on. Uh, so I, I definitely put yourself in that situation. Um, and I think the, the, the more people do that in the early, early days, uh, the more impact later on in life. Uh, so that would be one. Uh, I do also think that uh, if we can marry above our station, this is a great advantage also. And I, I see most successful People I know um, usually have great supporting spouses and uh, usually have a, a, a good situation at home, which gives them the counterbalance to you know the stress of competing. You know, business is competitive; it's not uh, not easy. And if you decide to uh, get into business at the sharp end, nobody's going to tell you that's an easy decision, and you have to live with the consequences. But if you have a good support uh, at home, uh, you can share. With, with your spouse, uh, some of the challenges that you have, and you, you, you don't feel alone, yeah. um, that can certainly be a, a huge advantage. Fantastic. You know, out of all the hundreds of interviews we've done, this is the, you're the first one who's spoken about uh, the support of the spouse. Thank you. That's, that's amazing. So next question for you is, uh, when was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, um, <laughs> well... This is one, yeah. so, but before this, uh, let me think. Um, well, I'm entering a new industry right now, mm. which is completely uh, different from everything else I've done. Um, so I've, I've invested in a, in a company which uh, is US-based, but we're going to help them go international uh, in the, the medical marijuana space. Oh, wow. So both the CBD and uh, the THC side, uh, we see uh, a tremendous growth in the possibilities of, of helping to solve some of the world's uh, real problems, real health problems, through the use of, of medical marijuana. Uh, it's been around for thousands of years. It stopped being looked at by the globe for about 80 years. And just recently, a number of countries now, and including in Asia, have started to go back and say, well, how does this actually uh, apply to today's problems? And they're realizing that there can be a lot of value and a lot of uh, real help for people who have a very wide range of serious medical conditions. So I think this is a, an opportunity to do something good, although we're doing it for profit. Yeah. But uh, I believe it's actually going to have a lot of uh, positive implications. Okay, so you know, I, I didn't realize about that you were doing something in the medical marijuana business. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about it. 
So I'm, <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing with this industry is everybody's a beginner because obviously in most countries it was an illegal industry until very recently. So if you're either a beginner or a criminal, so I'm a beginner and uh, what I've been learning uh, is that all of us carry uh, something called an endocannabinoid system inside our body. This governs our immune system, uh, the ability to sleep, the ability to process and forget, and, and a number of other systems. In fact, again, listen, listening to experts talking recently, we have more receptors in our body for cannabis than any other substance. Mm -hmm. So, number one, you, you cannot overdose because your body naturally governs the absorption. Yeah. Uh, you cannot get addicted to this, this substance. And it, it clearly has uh, the, the possibility to serve good. So, what they're looking, they're doing a lot of research now on you know, whether it's Alzheimer's, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, a, a number of different mm. serious conditions. And frankly, a lot of people who are in the, the latter stages of cancer, uh, it, it also helps with pain management, helps with anti-inflammation. So there's a tremendous amount of, of upside benefits there. And the, the, the start is just now. Um, there are a couple of countries who have been doing some research. Israel is one. They've been doing detailed research for more than 15, almost 20 years now. So they have a certain advantage on the rest of the world. But I do believe that, uh, as we all know, the opiate addiction around the US, Europe, and, and in many other countries is, is, is a crisis level. If there's a possibility to move people from opiate-based solutions to something which is a lot more user-friendly on your body, this has got to be a win-win. Amazing. Wonderful. So uh, my last question to you. It's a question I love to ask all my guests because the you know, 15, 20,000 people who watch us every day just believe successful people have no failures. <laughs> so, Alan, what is your biggest learning from your biggest failure? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, anybody who's successful almost by definition has to have failures. And if you don't have failures, you probably haven't been trying hard enough. I mean, yeah. That's the, the, the old rule. Um, I think doing your homework on people, you know, whatever business you're in, it's really about people, less about product. You know, good people working together will figure out solutions. Um, and we can't, none of us can really predict what product will last for what length of time, especially these days in the disruptive world. But if you have a good group of people together, your business partners, the people who found the company, if there's trust, if there's understanding, uh, if there's common set of values, we can be very different people. In fact, you ideally should be different people. Uh, but a common set of values and some trust, that's really uh, the key to success. And, you know, I have made the mistake on more than one occasion of coming together with a business partner that uh, I, I wouldn't have done if I'd done my homework properly. So I guess the one thing I see in common with people, let's say my age, they choose carefully their business partners a lot more carefully than we did when we were in our 20s and 30s. And I think a lot of people learn the hard way that you might want to spend a bit more time at the beginning to do your homework on those individuals, to do some background checks, to talk to people who really know them in and out of work. Uh, there's different ways to do that, but I think the time you spend before you make the plunge together is well spent. Wonderful. Alan, thank you very much. I wish you lots of success with your advisory boards and the medical marijuana venture and everything else you do. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. 
You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.